Hello and a big welcome to the Elevate Her podcast. My name is Selena. And I'm Maika. And we're here to discuss common barriers women face in our society. And provide you with top tips and information from high achieving women from all kinds of fields to empower and inspire you to achieve your full potential and elevate your life. Hi everyone, welcome to the very first episode of the season. Today we have the amazing Dr. Alison McGregor from Brown University with us. Dr. McGregor is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Rhode Island Hospital and co-founder and director of the Division of Sex and Gender in Emergency Medicine at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She is also the co-founder of the U.S. national organization Sex and Gender Women's Health Collaborative. Dr. McGregor has contributed to the publication of over 70 peer-reviewed scientific publications and has given numerous talks, including two TEDx talks. She was also the lead editor for the medical textbook Sex and Gender in Acute Care Medicine, published in 2016. Her latest book, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It, was published last year and is a must-read for all medical students and doctors, as well as women wishing to become advocates for their own health. So without further ado, let's dive right into the episode. So thank you very much again, Alison, to being on our podcast today. So as being the expert, we would say, on sex and gender medicine, uh, you've done incredible work on bringing awareness on health disparities between men and women across all areas of medicine. So for our listeners, can you just briefly introduce yourself, like where you're from and how did you get to where you are now? So thank you both for having me on this podcast. I think, you know, the concept of this um, is truly needed. And so I'm happy to be here. And I wish you the best of luck as we um, <laughs> sort of see what, what you create. Um, you. And so I really started thinking about a lot of these issues um, when I was ending my training in medicine. So for me, becoming a doctor was really something I always felt as though I needed to to be. There, there was no plan B. Um, mm. And there were no doctors in my family. And so this was something I really um, had to study hard, try to find mentors, and um, really uh, begin the path. And so once I was, you know, um, solidly in pre-med and then medical school, and then in, at the end of my residency, I have always wanted to be an emergency medicine physician. I feel as though it's such a unique perspective to care for patients that are part of the whole spectrum of um, health and, and illness. So you really see everything and at its core. And so, you know, it's also where societal um, issues, if there's anything going on, it's the place where all of these components come together. It's the, it's the fail safe. And so it's also very exciting to me. Um, and so as I was nearing the end of my residency, I wanted to stay on as faculty and begin doing research. And so I was always interested in women's issues, women's political issues, and really sort of followed the women's liberation rights and their the whole fight for reproductive mm -hmm. rights and voting mm -hmm. rights. And I always felt so grateful to all of those women who really worked hard for those things in society to change for women women mm -hmm. to be valued. 
And so I thought I wanted to do something, to, um, you know, and, and continue to do something to help women in their health. And so as I was starting to explore and look for mentors uh, in this area of research, it became very obvious to me that when I said I wanted to improve women's health, that they thought I meant obstetrics and gynecology. And while I was in the emergency department, people would say, oh, there's, you know, there's a pelvic exam that needs to be done. Uh, Dr. McGregor's here. and she, she loves women's health. And I thought, well, that, that's a very limited viewpoint of women's yeah. health. Why, why is it that we really equate health of women with their reproductive physiology? And so that's really when I started to look at that particular question. And at that time, the cardiovascular research was really starting to showcase that women have different presentations of heart attacks. So they might have different symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if that's the case, then we must be different in our anatomy. We have small coronary arteries. We must be different in the way that we develop disease. Um, and we're different in the way that we present with those, with those symptoms. So I thought, well, if I see that in cardiovascular and heart attacks, you know, being an emergency medicine physician, I see everything, you know, what about strokes and what about mm -hmm. the differences between men and women and having infections and trauma and yeah. uh, cancer. And so that really started my, my future and uh, to really sort of look at these things in the acute care setting. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Great. It's really, really inspiring. So your book is called Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. So can you explain to the listener what gender-based medicine is and where the idea of, you know, writing this book came from? Sure, absolutely. Um, so as I began to research this area, I was noticing that the reason why we have really siloed women's health into reproductive issues is because we have mainly used male models for our research in, in health and disease. So from male animals to white males were mostly the ones that were enrolled in And, and our major clinical research trials. And so what that did was really sort of flood the uh, evidence and the data that we were using in medical school to learn about how bodies develop disease. Um, and it was all based on the way that men have disease and how men mm -hmm. present with it. And we thought that women would be alike enough to, to be able to just apply it, you know, to the diversity mm -hmm. of the population. Mm -hmm. And so when we started realizing that, that, you know, if there's a difference here, then we started discovering there's a difference here and then here and then here. We realized that you can't assume that men and women will have similar responses or they have similar physi physiology. Mm -hmm. So when we say sex, we're talking about the chromosomal complement. So the most common are XX for women yep. and XY for men. Mm -hmm. And those chromosomes are in the entire body, all the cells of the body. They're in the heart and the lungs and the brain, and they're actually doing things. So are the hormones and they, they affect your response to medications, the way that your brain understands messaging. It's really, really quite uh, dramatic now, but this was not known. And so what happened was it led to lots of knowledge gaps in the health of women. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, have a lot of catching up to do to study women. And when we say gender, we're talking about how women or men present in society. So whether Mm -hmm. you feel as though you have more male characteristics or female characteristics or non-binary, and those things also impart um, health and concern. So I wrote the book because I was working very hard at collecting research and proving that these things are important and then trying to get this into the education system so that healthcare providers are aware of this. But then I would show up for my day job or my overnight job because we work Mm -hmm. all days and and nights. But I would show up at the emergency department and realize that nothing is really changing. It's not happening fast enough. And, you know, the more women I see with complaints of you know, chest discomfort and be told that it's anxiety or it's panic attack. I thought I need to write a book so that all women can read this, feel informed, feel as though they are able to advocate for themselves in in the healthcare system. And I wanted to really sort of give them examples, uh, real life examples of patients that I've seen, and then how they can navigate the healthcare system to get the best care, even as we try to improve the overall structure. Yeah. That's very inspiring. Yeah, and you did it that you did that really beautifully in your yeah. book. Um it's so unique because it really you. gives practical tips for women and that's like such a unique mm-hmm. way of writing a book. It's also very motivating um yeah. I think because it it motivated me to grab it and to start being more active as well and to like, ask the right questions or yeah. yeah, just be very considerate about what I'm what I'm doing with my yeah. body. That is wonderful to hear. Um, but I also want to showcase that I've been studying this for, you know, d- you know, decade and a half. And I, I do see that there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel, that change is inevitable. I'm very positive about this. I think it's very slow, but we've reached a point now where there's this moral obligation that we need to understand mm-hmm. women. Um, and not just men, include them into our our understanding of of science and health. And then there's just the fact that it's just good science, right? So if you're just, you're spending all this time on researching something and it's only applicable to, you know, half the population, that Mm -hmm. that doesn't seem like good science to me. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that's clearly the bottom line. That's great. So when you say that you can see a light at the end of the tunnel, where have you experienced change in the last like decades and a half when you say since you've started? You know, my examples are usually from the United States. And so Mm -hmm. our main um, funding body for medical research, our NIH, National Institutes of Health, has Mm -hmm. really set the bar that in order to receive funding from them, you must include sex as a biological variable in your study design. And so that's the, that's the sort of marker of excellence. You do not need to have NIH funding to do studies. So there still is a lot um, happening out there that, that is not taking this into account. But I think just having the understanding from a congressionally led research body that this is important really is, has sort of set the tone that, that, that these things need to happen. And so that makes me feel wonderful and hopeful. And just the fact that um, across the world, I 
and meeting so many people, especially because of the book, that are doing this type of research or that want to include this type Mm -hmm. of research. And just, you know, the global understanding of of how important this is, I I, I sort of feel as though that is, it's not reversible. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I came across a paper on permanent hypertension and they were using female and male cells from donors and I saw it and I was like, this is so great. But that came out, what, I think it was this year mm-hmm. in February. And you, you never saw this before. Or, you know, they were always using male mice to study this. And we know that even, you know, for chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, women develop blood clot so like differently than men. They have, they probably have different ways of dissolving it and resolving the clot as well. And when you think about that, is the basic principle of the disease is probably different for men and women, but still we don't take in, take it into account. And for me, that's, that's just shocking. And uh, mm-hmm. that's probably also why in some aspects of science, we're not going forward because we're not actually taking into account this fundamental biological difference that is sex. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and, and I'm so happy to hear that that study included both male and female cells uh, or samples. And the, and the other thing that we are really, that's so important is that, um, when you look at our models that we've used, so when, when if you're studying pulmonary hypertension, those models have been, um, you know, for, for decades based on sort of the male model of, of disease. Yeah. And so yeah. it's very hard for the next experiment to all of a sudden include females mm-hmm. because the you're basing your hypothesis on the previous male model and that may not fit. Yeah. So that's some of the challenges. So I think we're just, we're, we're evolving our, our understanding of how to really study this Mm-hmm. And, and it may, it may um, lead to just different lines of research. And, and yeah. you know, when, you're, when you explore a difference in females who have a pulmonary hypertension, that's going to lead into new and wonderful discoveries. you also mentioned is a falsely dosing of women so and your example you give is for based on the drug ambien so would you mind sharing the, the background to this as well sure yes that's a really flagship drug that demonstrates the importance of sex differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Ambien is a uh, sleep aid, Zolpidem, and it was one of the most widely prescribed drugs, at least in the United States. And the the individuals that were given it are most likely women because women have uh, more sleep disorders than men. So for about 20, 25 years, this drug was on the market, mostly being prescribed to women at the dose that was demonstrated in the initial studies, which were done on men. And so what happened was after it's been out and being widely used by women, there were a lot of post-market surveillance reports. So this means, um, you know, it has to be significant enough that someone stops and then, you know, files a report with the FDA that they think that there was this negative adverse event related to taking that particular medication. And so with Ambien, that was impaired driving. So there were, you know, a thousand reports about impaired driving from women the morning after taking Ambien. And so they looked at this and discovered that when you give a male and a female the same dose of the drug Ambien, that 
the, you know, the amount of time that the bottle says to wait. So you have to get like six hours of sleep or so. At that mm. time, they measured the serum concentration of the drug and women still had two times the serum concentration of Ambien in their system compared to men. Mm. And so they were waking up you know, drowsy and getting in the car and going to work or dropping mm. off their kids and then getting into motor vehicle crashes. And again, as you know, a frontline emergency care provider, mm -hmm. the, we're talking about life and death. So now our Food and Drug Administration, the governing body that approves it, established the first sex-specific dosing uh, regimen. And so they said that men should have 10 milligrams and women should initially start with five milligrams. And, you know, it's a great example of tailoring the dosing based on metabolism yeah. and pharmacokinetics mm -hmm. and physiology, but it also shows the, what can happen when we don't take that into account? Mm. And what, what happened to all of those women who have yeah. been taking, you know, a male-based dose and, you know, and the consequences of that? Yeah. And how many Definitely. years it took, yeah. just how many lives that were just gone away. Yeah, that's just exactly. so upsetting mm -hmm. to me. And, you know, that's one drug. And so, yeah. you know, you know how many drugs we, we, we use and, and, and yeah. we haven't studied their, their metabolism in men and women. Yeah. So it just lets you know, you know, it's like an iceberg. If, if, if yeah. we noticed it here, like, mm, maybe we should look at all of our medications. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. some medications that um, differ in their ability to do their job based on the menstrual cycle in women. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that changes our body weight. It changes our metabolism metabolism of yeah. medications. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's time to take these things into account. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's long overdue. Definitely. Definitely. So can you talk about how pain responses differ between men and women? Because this is something you mentioned a lot in your book, and I find it fascinating. Yeah, pain is really a complex issue. There's so many things involved. You know, there's the sex-based physiologic markers of pain, you know, and the responses of pain. But then there's the gender, social, cultural expression of pain. And so when you pull all that together, it's it's pretty fascinating. I mean, we know that women have lower thresholds for pain, so they're more likely to say, ow, before for a male does. And they're more likely to have chronic pain, a lot of mm -hmm. chronic painful conditions um, mm -hmm. that really aren't studied enough, like irritable bowel or chronic yeah. pain or reflex sympathetic dystrophy and migraines and all of these yeah. chronic pain syndromes um, that are much more common in women. And so from you know, a patient perspective, there's, you know, the women are often coming in complaining of painful conditions. And then there's, there's like this fatigue about it from the doctor. The doctor's like, oh, you're just, you know, exaggerating or you're an emotional female. Um, yeah. Perhaps we should treat you for anxiety instead yeah. of mm -hmm. the pain. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things I, I say as an example, and when I'm teaching my students is that, You know, if a man has a broken wrist um, and in the room next to him is a female with a broken wrist and the female is is having also an emotional reaction to the fact that she's in pain yeah. mm -hmm. um, and she's expressing it. And the male may, may, may not, but he's not, you know, culturally allowed to express it as much. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of the students will say, well, let's give her, you know, an anxiety medication. She seems very anxious. And I, and I said, well, she's probably anxious because she's in pain. Yeah. Um, so why don't yeah. we treat the pain and then mm -hmm. we can, you know, we, we can see yeah. what that does. But from a sort of research perspective, some insights now are just incredible. There's some research from McGill University that is showing that the pathway of a painful condition to the brain is different in males and females. 
So for instance, if that wrist is broken, then it, we were taught that it tells this particular immune cell, the microglial cell that, Mm -hmm. Hey, we have, we have some damage here. And then that microglial cell tells the nerve in the spinal cord and then tells the brain, ouch, this really hurts. Mm -hmm. What they've discovered is that that immune cell is different between men and women, that when they blocked that cell in women, it, it, did not have an, a, um, a response. So that women use T cells to tell the spinal cord and spinal cord tells the brain. And so a lot of our medications have been based on what we have thought is the pattern of mm. telling the brain that there's a painful condition. Yeah. And so now we're realizing that that particular pathway may be very specific to biological sex and to effective hormones. You know, it's it's really groundbreaking work like that that's going to yeah. allow us to be able to tailor the types of treatments so that maybe women won't get chronic pain. Maybe we've been treating mm-hmm. pain in women thinking that it's supposed to help because it helps in men. And when mm-hmm. it doesn't, their pain just becomes more chronic and chronic and chronic and that sort of thing. So there's, you know, when you look, you, you, you'll often find important differences. That's fascinating. It is. Yeah. So with this, what can we as women do uh, to be listened correctly? So what is something we can do to be, to be heard and, and to improve yeah. the situation? I think one of the most important first steps for women is to really take control of their health record. So mm-hmm. you have to be your own best bookkeeper um, because oftentimes you'll um, you'll see a doctor and that doctor will say it's not your um, it's not this. Why don't you go see this specialist, a cardiologist? And the cardiologist mm-hmm. will say it's not your heart. Why don't you go see a pulmonologist? And the pulmonologist says I think it's musculoskeletal. Go see this orthopedist. And that happens to many, many women because of our lack of understanding of their unique health mm-hmm. needs. And so there's a lot of tests. There's lots of unnecessary prescriptions that have been um, given. What are your reactions to the prescriptions? How does that change during your menstrual cycle? What mm-hmm. Have you had CAT scans and MRIs? Things that don't necessarily need to be repeated um, mm-hmm. over and over again. And so really just making sure that you own the, your, your medical record and also you know, go over this with your, with your doctors, because, you know, if you have a diagnosis of say an anxiety disorder, because you once said that you were anxious about something, these things stick forever and they get copied and pasted. It's everything's electronic. And so you may not actually meet the criteria for a generalized anxiety disorder. So Mm -hmm. that may not, you know, be necessary to sort of create bias when other doctors look at your chart. So I, I would encourage people to, to really take ownership of that. And then also to have an advocate, you know, to, I would say like bring one and be one, because if you are that woman and you're in pain and you're a strange environment, it's, it's often hard to advocate for yourself and remember what to say. And mm-hmm. women are constantly trying to not overexpress or underexpress. So it's good to have an advocate there that can say, you know, she doesn't normally complain like this, or this is very unusual for her, or this is very different from her normal migraines or her anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, It really sort of helps to have someone there to help you advocate. And then also being very, feel empowered to ask a lot of questions. 
So ask things like, has this medication been tested in women? Should I have a different dose? What if I, you know, if I have these particular side effects, what should I do? You know, um, be very inquisitive and that doctor may not know that answer at that moment, but what you're going to do is then start the process. It's like the dominoes. That doctor will then say, hmm, maybe I should look that up. Um, mm-hmm. And then that will be, then be part of their, their information that they can pass along to the next patient. And so I think just feeling empowered to really sort of manipulate the current medical system to help suit you best. I think it's such a hard thing to implement as well, because it's all based on education, right? And some women like us, like we're really lucky to be educated and to be in science, to understand these principles and you're, to have come across mm-hmm. your book. But there's so many women who just don't have access to that kind of education. And so, you know, how do you deal with these type of situation? How do you empower these women? Um, yeah, who don't have access to education. Right. I think that's an important point because, um, you know, in the emergency department, you there's such a variety of, of patients. And so mm-hmm. to be able to... Um, make sure that you understand what what each person wants out of that visit um, is very important. So, and everyone has a different health literacy. So, um, people may not understand, um, you know, what gallbladder disease is. Never mind, you know, pulmonary hypertension, which is a very complex thing to, to describe to patients. So, I always um, try to um, ask as the physician, but then also empower patients to do this too. Is to Make sure that you state, what's the purpose of your visit? Do you want to just know if you have cancer or not? Like you think that whatever's happening to you, you have a relative that has lung cancer and you've been feeling this cough and you want to know if you have lung cancer. That's very helpful because then we can reassure you whether you have lung cancer or not. And now that your answer, your question is answered. Um, If you just want to feel better, if you want to know the diagnosis, you're sick of of getting, you know, um, referred elsewhere and you just, you're you're tired Mm -hmm. of that. You, you, You just want some information you want a note for work. You know, these are things that be very forthcoming in what you hope to achieve out of, out of seeing that physician can, can really sort of help hone in on making sure that you at least get that covered. I think that's, that's another way, you know, it can be very, very simple to something more complex. So because if we say like advocating ourselves, is there so much false information on the internet as well? So I feel like always that's that's our issue. We're really lucky to yeah. have like Dr. This, Google. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Dr. Google and uh, yeah, <laughs> false information everywhere. <laughs> and it's inevitable that people are, no matter where they are um, in their education, they, they are either talking to someone or looking it up on the internet. And that's okay. Just bring that in with you. Say, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have pain on my right side and I looked, you know, in Google and it says I could have these horrible things, Um, you know, then I know, okay, well, that's, that's where your core is. So it it all helps. Yeah. Good. I feel (laughs) like sometimes it comes to the point that you have to be comfortable with your GP or your your, uh, healthcare provider. So you really have to take the time to find someone that really suits you. And I think so that's many people, really difficult yeah, sometimes. that's so hard. Yeah. It's so, so hard. It's kind of like dermatologists, yeah. gynecologists, it's yeah, yeah. GP. Gynecologists that have one. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and I, I, um, you know, I applaud you for, for 
working hard to make sure that you find that right fit because you know in an emergency department you may not have a choice yeah but you have to but you're a general practitioner or these people psychiatrists especially you need to have some sort of relationship or some sort of understanding yeah. and um yeah. you know and, and back and forth uh, so I, I, I encourage many women to, you know, if they don't feel that they have the right fit mm-hmm. to find another one, there's, there's no, there's no sense in staying with, with someone who is supposed to be your consultant. One of my main questions is actually, so how can we book and get more involved into like gender-based medicine research? I know in your book, you talk about getting involved in clinical trials. Yeah, yeah I think now and now more, more resources are becoming available. So there are some that are incredible. Um, there's the uh, Laura Bush Institute for Women's Health, um, uh, Texas Tech University Health Science. It's called sexandgender.org. Um, and they have this amazing repository of uh, resources and information, and you can just continue to click away. And th- those exist, you know, in lots of places. The Canadian Institute for Health Research has their own sex and gender modules, and so does the NIH as well. But they're fun to do this, you know, especially the Canadian ones. Yeah. Um, you can get certificates. And so you can kind of show your research advisor that, you know, you just you have the certificate because you completed these modules on sex and gender. Mm-hmm. They teach you how to include those concepts into your research. So that's, that's really great. And then just, you know, um, in order to have research be published, it has to go through a lot of uh, fail-safes. So you need funding, has to go through the IRB, you know, some Mm -hmm. sort of um, institutional review board, has to be uh, accepted by a journal with editors and peer reviewers. And a lot of us are, have roles in that. So if you're on a committee, you know, an education committee or a research mm-hmm. committee, just making sure that you bring this topic up and ensure that these components of sex and gender are represented, those would be great times to sort of stop and bring that research back to the person who, who submitted it and then say, yeah. you know, where are the women in here? Where's the sex-based mm-hmm. analysis? Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. So I just yeah. encourage, you know, women or anyone in, you know, that they, they in any sort of context that they have to make sure that these um, issues are are part of the process thank you great tips yeah that is really great that's really great i'm gonna do it yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yes yeah Yeah. sounds really good (laughs) so i wanted to ask you as well so as a female doctor do you have any tips for like future maybe female doctors or like what were the main obstacles that you faced um being a female in the emergency department That's a good one. So when I went into medical school, I was still, uh, you know, the medical school now, the admission rate is about 50-50 for gender, for for gender men men and women. And so that was not the case when I first started. So I feel as though that's been an an improvement, but where we are now showing the, the next phase to really sort of uh, fix is that Mm -hmm. women in leadership positions. So, okay, we're graduating lots of medical students that Mm -hmm. are are women, but when you look at who are the chairs of the departments, who are the presidents of universities, who are full professors, that's where it's still very male dominated. So I think it's important for, for the younger listeners to know that it's not fixed, that there's still work to be done. Um, A lot of times people people say, well, look, you know, I can get in just, just like a a man can, but there's lots of hidden sort of invisible bias that's still, still there. And so when I first started in my emergency medicine job, my first job, 
And when I showed up, these attendings, you know, full physicians would say, oh, did you meet the female ED doc, the female ED doc? Because there was only one. Wow. Um, it was okay. very male yeah. dominated field. It's, yeah. you have to be sort of physically fit and you yeah. see lots of things that take a while to get used to human condition. Yeah. And so it was very procedure yeah. oriented. It was very male dominated. So mm-hmm. I've seen that sort of change, especially at my shop. Now we have, we have lots of women now, so that that's, Amazing. that's great. great. <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the things that helped me was I joined lots of women's groups. So I've always okay, loved, yeah. you know, women's groups. So either women's groups for, for physician um, mm-hmm. uh, or for students or community-based yeah. thing. And when yeah. you talk to other women, you realize sort of the uncover a lot of the biases mm-hmm. that people are experiencing. When you say it out loud, you know, the little sexual assaults or innuendos or these sorts of things or mm-hmm. pay differentials, really coming together and, and discussing these things uh, with other women, I, I found very helpful because it made me very acutely alert to my situation. And mm-hmm. I was noticing things that maybe I thought were invisible beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, making sure that you have community of like-minded people, you know, something else just to, just to share these stories to make sure that we're still evolving. Yeah, no, that's really, really important. We have a few actually women's group at Imperial. Yeah, yeah there do. are a few like women in STEM, yeah. we have women computing. And also with this, we're trying to establish, yeah, like, to support women as yeah, well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so important. Having students come through and graduating fellows that now are at other institutions and are creating similar programs like our division. So it just helps to, um, to grow, you know, I want to create as yeah. many mini me's as possible mm-hmm. so that they can um, go out there and help change the world. I like that. Definitely. Hopefully, yeah. they're going to have a great R number. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I hope we can see more of this in the UK as well. And yes. I'm from France, so I hope we can see some more divisions like that in France and like yeah. everywhere. Germany. Germany. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm, fr- I'm from Germany. So, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, like it will spread. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Germany yeah. has some. Um, yeah, I'm, I, like the global, it's it's happening. So so look around. Uh, yeah, Good. I think you'll I think you'll see it propping up. Yeah. So one signature question that we ask all of our guests is, what is your favorite word or quote, and why? Oh, you didn't give me a heads up on that one. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's weird. The one thing that just came to mind, and I don't know, I don't know if this is my favorite word, but here's a word just to consider the word feminist, right? Okay. So the word feminist is so, it comes with such emotion and and complex history. And I always felt like, you know, why was that such a, such a powerful word Mm -hmm. when all it really means is equality? And so I like to use that word sort of in the sense of it's just makes it's just makes sense. It's it's not meaning that uh, it was sort of given that sort of hysteria type of picture, mm-hmm. women being very uh, abrasive or emotional or. But I I like to just give um, give it a sort of warm tone of like obviousness, like this is just fairness and and equitability mm-hmm. throughout the world. We make up. of the population, like there's a little bit more women than men in this world. And so why wouldn't we want to make sure that we are treated equally? That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean we should be treated the same. 
right? So we should have equal rights. We should have research that takes our uniqueness into account. And that may be that we are treated differently, but we have, but equally. So I think, you know, those are interesting terms to, to think about. Thank you. Beautiful, yeah. That's perfect way to end it. Finally, can you tell our listeners where they can find more about you? So where we or they can follow you on social media and also where they can get your book from. Yes, I have a website. So it's alisonmcgregormd.com. And that also links to my Twitter, um, which is at McGregorMD. I said at, no, it's alisonmcgregormd.com. And then my Twitter account and Instagram and Facebook. So there's links to there and there's links to um, the purchase to book. And it's, you know, it's available at at any, any place that sells books. (laughs) That's very good. I know. (laughs) So I think we're really happy. Yeah. Thank (laughs) you so much, um, Alison, for coming on. It was such a great conversation with you, honestly, really inspiring. And I think our listeners We'll get a lot from that yeah. as well. So. You are inspiring us and thank yeah. you so much for this. You are yeah. inspiring me, honestly. Thank <laughs> you. Um, just just having this conversation with you two was was really wonderful. And I look forward to seeing what you do with your careers. Thank you so course, much. Yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Please do. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alison and are as inspired as we are to become advocates for your health. We would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast, as well as share it around you so that we can reach and empower more people to elevate their lives.